Welcome to the Long-Term Care Chronicles podcast. Thank you so much, uh, Ms. McKenzie, for coming on to the Long-Term Care Chronicles and to talk about the seniors advocate role in British Columbia. So before we start, if I can get you just to give a little bit of background history of yourself and for the role of the seniors advocate in BC. Well, my professional background is in providing services and care for seniors, and I spent about 20 years in home and community care, some long-term care, some assisted living, uh, some of the other community services, uh, senior centers and, and volunteer programs with seniors. So I've spent a good part of my professional career working with seniors in the community setting and in licensed setting, uh, settings as well. And so from that led to uh, the this job that I have now now as the seniors advocate for the province of British Columbia. This office was established in 2014 under the Seniors Advocate Act of British Columbia. And that act mandates the functions of this office, the powers and authorities and responsibilities of the office. So the best way to describe it would be the office has a duty to monitor services to seniors, to provide information to seniors and their family members around services that are available to them, and to do systemic reviews and reports on issues that affect seniors and their families and provide recommendations to people who provide those services and to report directly to the minister responsible for seniors, which in British Columbia currently is the Minister of Health, and uh, to, in that report, talk about the activities of this office and recommendations on what the government can do to improve things. So within that mandate, uh, the, the act also identifies the five areas of jurisdiction. So healthcare obviously is important, what happens in long-term care, in hospitals, in home care, but the majority of seniors actually never experience long-term care or home care, although most at some point will experience hospital care. So the act also requires us to look at the housing supports, the transportation supports, the income supports, and the personal supports that many are requiring as things they could do for themselves when they were younger, become more difficult, if not impossible, when they're older. They're not really health care, like I've got a shovel my uh, sidewalk from snow and get wood into my fireplace in order to live and be independent, but I can't do that myself anymore. So uh, the act envisions that we look at those personal supports as well. Oh, perfect. Thank you so much for that. And with the seniors advocate uh, role, it's basically you're providing for community and for congregate care settings for individuals who are taking part of senior services. Is that uh, correct? Because let's say if someone is younger, let's say under the age of 65, they have dementia, would they as well be part or fall under the seniors advocate in terms of someone you, connecting to your office? They do. What the act specifies is it defines a senior and that is a person who is 65 years of age or older or a person in receipt of services that are predominantly for seniors. So if we take long-term care, for example, we know there's people under the age of 65 in long-term care, but 90% of the people are 65 or older. So that qualifies as a senior service, as an example. Perfect, thank you so much. And then since um, 
2014 when the Seniors Advocate uh, was established in BC. What has your office seen as the support for services and advocacy since then till now? Well, there's a few things um, that have um, policy initiatives and, and changes in practice that have resulted from the work of the office. Most markedly in long-term care where we've seen changes around and increases in hours of care, where we've seen changes in the access policy so people have more choice over where uh, they are to go when they need public home support. We've seen changes in assisted living around the services that can be offered. We've seen increases in our senior supplement, which is a, a monthly payment to the lowest income seniors in BC. We've seen changes to the adult um, uh, uh, CARE Act uh, in terms of, of admission and competency to determine admission to a care facility. We've, we've seen quite a number of things over the last, what will be seven years uh, this March. That's quite a, a number of, uh, you know, changes that has happened in such a, a, an extended period of time. And then how has that kind of changed during COVID? Because I'm sure now that your office has seen a lot more in terms of more of the vulnerable individuals that are being impacted. Is that correct? Yes, one of the things I talk about is that a lot of issues related to seniors, most issues, were not created by COVID, but COVID revealed them. And I think, obviously, uh, people, uh, most Canadians are now aware that life in long-term care and nursing homes may not be uh, what they thought it was. And it COVID didn't create that uh, crisis or that issue, but it revealed them. I think that the other thing that COVID has highlighted is really the precariousness of our low-income seniors in terms of their day-to-day -day life and their connections within the community. So an example is a lot of seniors would go to their local library or their senior center, and that's where they got their internet access, that's where they received some meals perhaps, and where their only ability to socialize with other people was found. Well, those all closed for about three to four months and cut off uh, many seniors from access to the internet and access to other people. And so I think that brought to the fore the, the need to have a, a stronger safety net for particularly our low-income seniors and those seniors who live alone. Oh, thank you. Yeah, because I can only imagine that now they must feel disconnected from society because they don't have access to a lot of those services that they once had before prior to COVID. And with your most recent report back in December of 2020, there were a couple of increases in regards to elder abuse and pharma care and long-term care settings. Now, what do you, what would your office do in terms of with those additional complaints and the infractions? And what are those trends saying about in terms of with the senior aging population within the province of British Columbia? Well, certainly when we look at the elder abuse and neglect data, what it has led to is we are actually in the process of a systemic review of elder abuse and neglect. We think there are issues around 
uh, understanding the magnitude of it, the reporting of it, the follow-up of it, uh, just the fragmented way in which we have to gather data on elder abuse and neglect. Uh, so, so without the monitoring report trying to collect that and report that, we may not have appreciated the degree to which all of that is fragmented. And so that's leading us to our systemic review. I think in terms of the long-term care uh, complaints and uh, licensing infractions and, and what are the trends we're seeing there. Some of them bounce around a bit, uh, one year up, one year down. What we look at is where we have a five-year trend line uh, of what we're seeing. So there's good news. We have a very positive five-year trend line on a reduction, for example, of falls with injury in long-term care. That's a focus uh, that we've made. But we also are seeing uh, other trend lines going in the opposite direction of what we need to be seeing. And one of the things we've seen during COVID is a significant increase in the use of antipsychotics in long-term care after many years of decline. So those are areas that we are looking at and wanting to monitor very closely and see what is going to become a trend and what was a one-year blip, if you will. I'm sure there's going to be a lot more of those, uh, of those types of trends that you probably are seeing for COVID, whether or not that will be a one time, but that is definitely very concerning to know that, you know, the increase of antipsychotics uh, being provided in a congregate care setting. And then with the, the data for these reports year over year, what would you say, uh, you know, does this information then drive the policy changes to improve senior quality in the province? And what are your office's recommendations for that? Well, I think um, decision makers do use the data that are collected in the monitoring report. Um, it's not a report that makes recommendations per se. It is every year we produce, here's um, the, uh, here's, here are the trend lines on these uh, 70 odd services and programs for seniors in the province. But you can see that when we're starting to see things developing as a trend, government is looking at and responding to those with some policy initiatives. Now, some challenges are, some problems are real uh, and the trend line is not what we should be seeing, but the number of people affected are relatively small. And one of the things that government does and every government does it everywhere is you have to prioritize. And so sometimes that's difficult because the effect on me is profound, but it's not affecting a lot of people. And versus it's affecting, it's not as profound an impact, but it is affecting a lot of people. And government has to balance all of that uh, in the competing priorities that are out there for where government not just directs its money, but also its attention. And there's only so much capacity for that. So uh, we, do, we do see uh, policy initiatives based on some of the data on, in our reports, not all of the data in our reports. Okay, thank you. No, thanks for that clarification. And then for like during 2020, has your office been impacted with a number of concerns uh, relating to either whether it's within the community or congregate care settings? pertaining to seniors? 
We have been. In the beginning, um, in the first three months, what we were hearing from a lot of seniors was about how do I get my groceries? How do I get my medications? Um, how do I get some of this money that everybody's getting <laughs> for COVID? Um, and I think that we need to remember in wave one, um, it people, it wasn't just a, a shutdown. People were told, don't get out your, leave your house and seniors in particular, right? Until we figure out what's going on here. So there was a lot of uh, concern uh, in the first wave. I think that uh, to a large extent, seniors now have found a way to get their food and get their medications. Incomes for seniors have not been as impacted as the working population, particularly those who work in hospitality and tourism, but we couldn't have known that. Initially, you may recall that there was a big dive in the stock market and a lot of seniors income is linked to um, their RRSP or their pension plan that's invested in the stock market. So there were fears about what that would look like. Um, that for the most part has corrected. And so now uh, what we've been hearing about is uh, this office mostly related to long-term care and mostly related to the separation of residents from their family members, particularly in BC where we've had the most uh, severe visit restrictions in the country in terms of family members being able to see their loved ones in long-term care. And continuing that with the essential caregivers being restricted to those congregate care settings, how has the province reacted to those families' concerns and what is your office doing to alleviate or at least to assist with those concerns? Well, we did a province-wide survey for all uh, family members and residents to participate in and, and had very good participation. About 15,000 people, over 15,000 participated and I think we had over uh, 14,000 valid responses. And unfortunately, that is not an area where we've seen the response from the government that we would have hoped to have seen. Uh, one of the issues is in BC, every resident doesn't have an essential care partner or care uh, visitor. Um, it's a fairly low percentage that do. And so uh, we're, we're hoping to see more um, done on that front, although it's looking like that will happen hand in glove with vaccinations in long-term care. And then with the, I guess, you know, I guess with the restrictions and is that going to ease with the vaccination process? Like how is the rollout, you, if, you know, if you're aware as how that is going within the province as well? I think the vaccine rollout, particularly for long-term care is going quite well in, in BC, even with the supply chain interruptions that we're seeing. I think we're still on target uh, around uh, priority of our long-term care residents. And I believe, uh, what are we, January 26th, uh, close to 100% of our residents and staff have received uh, their first a dose of the vaccine. I think some have received their second dose. We've had to stretch the second dose to 42 days now because of our uh, supply chain disruption, but I think we're fairly confident that we're moving forward with that. So the anticipation is that once our care homes are fully vaccinated, that we will, uh, and with the maximum protection, which is seven days after the second dose, we will see an, uh, 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 an opening up. I don't think the 
floodgates are, aren't going to be opened and life return completely to normal. But I think longer visits, more frequent visits, and more visitors uh, will hopefully uh, follow in Mar by March and, and certainly by April. Well, that's good to hear. And then with your, uh, do you, like your office, does it support the initiative of the Victoria, of, sorry, the Vancouver Island Family Councils Association to have a defined um, family councils in the provincial legislation? Like how would family, family members be able to voice their concerns for their loved ones in these congregate care settings? I do support that. And in fact, I've recommended to the government that they uh, create a provincial body that all resident and family councils could be, would belong to so that there's a provincial level voice representing residents and family members at the decision making table. That has been missing uh, from the process throughout this pandemic of involving directly family members and residents in decisions being made about them. And I think had we involved them, we might have made different decisions. Yeah, that would, you know, I think probably have eased concerns and made a lot more of communication a lot more easier. And then um, going back again to the December 2020 report, um, in terms of the increased uh, complaints or infractions of the operators of these congregate care settings, was there a, uh, you know, three main drivers of this um, in terms of, and then what would be the resolution process if there wasn't one, but what should be for the future? Well, certainly when you look at it, the there's issues around licensing infractions, which are different from issues around complaints. And um, in a given year, sometimes those numbers are up, sometimes they're down. The overall numbers are actually surprisingly small. Um, when you look at 27,000 beds, 365 days a year. So the, I think the major reason for complaints, um, they're, they're captured in fairly general categories around sufficient staffing, around the care and supervision of the, of the staff in the care home. That's mostly uh, what you hear from complaints, which will be from family members and residents. Licensing infractions are looking for very specific things that tie to the regulation. Sometimes um, you can miss the, the forest for the trees. Um, and uh, that can happen sometimes in a licensing environment. And I think that's something we need to step back and look at because our enforcement is within our licensing regime and how well is our regulation aligning with what really is the experienced quality of life of the person living there. Uh, sometimes that's not as clear. And then I guess you're just trying to make sure that that is going forward much more of a clearer process. Is that correct? Yes, yes. Yeah. Perfect. And then I just want to as well touch upon the elder abuse report, um, because from the report, it's saying that it's, it's increasing. And I know that it doesn't necessarily reflect uh, that report currently what's happening now, because that probably will be until later on this year uh, report. But how would your office then be able to kind of come up with a a resolution or at least a preventative measure for families to be able to cope uh, with some of these elder abuse, because I'm sure some of that must be quite dramatic in terms of what you are seeing currently. 
It is what, what we have found. One of the reasons we've launched the systemic review is that irrespective of whether things are up or down and they do fluctuate, the numbers are far too small and the, and the sources for reporting are too fragmented. We don't know whether the same person is being reported in this database and this database. There's a lack of clarity and understanding amongst the public around what is elder abuse and neglect and including self-neglect. There's a complete lack of understanding on who to report uh, issues to. There's clearly either very significant underreporting, which is what we think is happening, or there's not very much elder abuse happening. And we don't think that's the case because we, you're trying to match up the anecdotal reports and the perceptions with the reality of the numbers. And the numbers are so small that, and you, when you look at it, you can see, okay, we're not really, how exactly are we tracking and recording this? You realize we really aren't. Um, so we have to begin, I think, with the basic foundation of, of educating the public about what abuse and neglect and elder abuse, neglect and self-neglect is. We need to be absolutely clear on a very simple process for reporting it. Uh, we need what we call you know, the single uh, uh, designated place a person reports this to. And then from that report, we need a robust system that can give us confidence these reports are being investigated, tracked, and the outcomes being measured. We don't have that now. Uh, I'm not sure any jurisdiction in Canada really captures it. Uh, and I think that we need to look at it given the public concern around this issue, number one, and the growing number of people who will be captured under this umbrella of potential victims of elder abuse. Yeah, because I can only see that, especially during this time of the pandemic, that that would definitely be a lot more extra pressures on the families and not knowing how to or where to go in terms of coping or where to get resources to help them in their particular situation. Now, in terms of your reporting, do you use many different, I guess, ministries that you capture that information from, whether it's whether it's elder abuse, whether it's pharmacare, to be able to come up and generate to find out what are really the main drivers and the main issues that are going on within the province? Yes, we, um, we have the statutory authority to require uh, the information, to have access to the information. So we have uh, a significant number of different um, data sets we use uh, at the provincial level and the health authority level. Perfect. Thank you so much. And then I just wanted to say in terms of with the with the pandemic, how has that further illustrated to your office what resources need to be in place uh, to really support seniors within the province? Well, I think it's very clearly revealed we need to come to terms with our fragmented long-term care system. Uh, and I think there will be a lot of work on that. I think it has also revealed the precariousness of our very low-income seniors. And there's already been some work to address that by increasing, for example, significantly the senior supplement that they receive. So I think that that, that work will be ongoing. And then I think the other issue, irrespective of whether someone is low income or not, living in the community is 
the isolation and loneliness factor simply by, by virtue of many more people live alone at the age of 85 than live alone at the, many more percentage of people uh, live alone at the age of 85 than at the age of 45 or 50. Um, I think it's about 10% uh, of people under 65 live alone, and that rises to about 29% when you look at people over 65, and yet again, uh, more when you look at over 85. Thank you. And so, Will, in terms of the, the supplement, uh, the income supplement, would that still kind of increase over time? Do you, do you see that? Um, has that been one of those uh, concerns that you think that that will increase? Uh, that is our hope, that we will see that uh, increase become permanent. Um, it's been in place for several, I think, about eight months. Um, and so we are expecting that, that that will stay in place. Yes, hopefully. Perfect. No, thank you so much. I just wanted to thank you so much for your time, uh, for coming on to the Long-Term Care Chronicles and just, just really tell the listeners as to what uh, the seniors advocate role is, because I know in the province of Ontario, they are putting through um, legislation for having a very similar type of a role uh, based on what you have in the province of CC. So thank you so much. I really do appreciate your time. Okay. Thank you very much. Okay. Bye-bye.